You're doing very well. You <laughs> I can see you trying so hard not to laugh. <laughs> I I actually think that tune's a bit of a vibe. Um, that's one of the the stock tunes that that they give us in this program, and I think it's hilarious. Welcome to Delving Deeper. This is episode five. I'm Will Berkman, as always, and I'm joined by my friend from the United States, Kyle Dobbs. Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's definitely a vibe. I, I, I can get behind that. I went through the whole library and a lot of them are a little bit more like they're pitched at sounding kind of techie, you know, whereas that one, it feels like, you know, we could be sitting in a bar having a little margarita and I'm just picking your brains. And that's what I'm here to do. Kyle, I know you through the fitness space, um, but there's a few aspects to your character that I find particularly interesting that I want to sort of dive into. But before I get to that, do you mind just telling the people who you are? Yeah. So obviously my name's Kyle Dobbs. Um, I've been in the fitness industry, as, as mentioned, for about 15 years and have owned my own business, completely remote business for the last four. Um, outside of work, I'm a husband and a father. So I've been married for about 13 years and I've got a 10-year-old and a 8-year-old. Um, and we live in the Midwest after living in New York for almost 12 years. So big changes all around there, but that takes up the majority of my time. That's what I do. So it's actually exactly those few elements to you that I want to explore today. Because when I do interact with you, you know, and obviously we're friends behind the scenes on social media, but if you just look front and center on social media, you see a highly educated fitness professional who's talking about biomechanics and energy systems. And I still don't know what Tensegrity is, by the way. I need to <laughs> need to admit that to you. I see you posts with it and I just like it so that people think I'm smart. Don't know what you're talking about. But there's that. Then you're coaching other people in business. You're mentoring other trainers. You're obviously quite successful on that front. But then we do have this dedicated family man with a very cute French bulldog. And and in discussions, um one of the things that you that you put forth to your students is that you've really tried to shape your business to allow you to satisfy your deeper life values, which are spending time, you know, with your wife, with your kids, mm. with the French bulldog, most importantly. Um, and I think that that's very interesting because for the most part, we think of people who are driven for success in business as being people who are sort of treating business itself as the end. Mm -hmm. And so I want to talk a little bit about your values, how they came to be, and what motivates you to continue to be successful and continue to grow your business in light of all of that. So I guess first things first, was there a point at which you came to the realization that your life outside of your career was of equal, equal or greater priority maybe than your career itself? Yes, definitely. You know, I, I'd, when my wife and I moved to New York, we moved right out of school. So we were obviously, we were young, you know, no kids. We weren't, we weren't married yet at the time. And we were both very career driven at that point, you know, so we spent the first three or four years in the city kind of just having fun, like being, being young, busy people that are making pretty good money, especially for like what our expenses were. We were able to, you know, go out and do things and kind of live that lifestyle for a period of time. And it was great, you know, even even working 60 plus hours a week, like it was still very fun uh, based on what we were supposed to do and based on what the expectations were. And as we, you know, obviously got older and as we had kids, my my priorities definitely shifted, you know, and at that point, my wife had 
she left her job and was a stay at home mom. And I was working more so in management and leadership and less in, in just direct training. And so my job definitely turned more into like a nine to five rather than, you know, a 5 a.m. to 7 p.m. or 8 p.m., whatever crazy schedules that, that coaches usually work. But but I was still having a lot of trouble just differentiating and dissociating, I think, my professional life from my personal life. And when we we eventually moved from the city and actually moved in, to New Jersey, which, again, is a, say, 20 to 30 minute commute into the city for where we were at and into like the quote unquote suburbs. Uh, I, we thought it was going to be a change where it's like we'd, we'd have a better home life and kind of be out of the hustle and, and bustle of the city. And it ended up being much worse for me where my 20 to 30 minute commute ended up being closer to an hour and a half each way based on just train scheduling and construction and everything else and being busy. And I was leaving the house at 5 a.m. and getting back at nine and answering emails like all weekend at, at that point. And I just, I wasn't happy in any way. I definitely wasn't the husband or father or French bulldog father uh, that I, that my, that I wanted to be at that point. And it was honestly, I, I dropped into some pretty deep depression, you know, based off of it. Like it was really, really impactful to me in a, in a, in a negative way. Even when I was home, I, I wasn't happy based on that. It was even hard for me to enjoy my time at home because I was so disappointed in, in kind of what was going on. Um, and we eventually kind of up and left and moved back to the Midwest, moved back to a different lifestyle because of it. And I mean, I even had like, I was getting blood work done. Like my, my testosterone was like down in the three hundreds, like my autonomics were fucking wrecked. Um, I was, I was a mess. My hair was falling out. I was losing weight. Um, all sorts of just like digestive and health issues because of it. Like I was just overstressed. I was run down. I was beat up and it was just time to make a move. And we moved back to the Midwest and it kind of recalibrated a little bit. Um, took six months off work altogether and we just grew closer as a family. And that was probably the best six months of like my adult life where I could just be a dad, be a husband, like really spend time with everybody, kind of reconnect as much as possible. Um, and when it came to the point where I kind of figured out like, oh, I have to work again, like I, I probably need to like start making some money and like doing some stuff. And, um, I decided to kind of start up my own business and really try to build my business around that, you know, as you mentioned, and one of the biggest things that I was looking at was how I could scale my business and, and help people and reach people in a way that also didn't force me to sacrifice my own principles and my own values, uh, which is a very difficult thing to do, I found. And I, I failed in a few different revenue streams before I kind of figured out the things that, that would work for me. I had some go terribly wrong um, and just not work. Um, but then we found some stuff that allowed, you know, that allowed me to really just be home and be around the way that I wanted to. And now, you know, we're completely remote. I've got uh, a business partner and, uh, and another employee now, um, and Matt and Craig, and we work with anywhere between like four to 500 coaches and athletes at a time, you know, at any given time over the course of the year, based on what we're doing. And while we're, while we are busy, we, we are able to scale that out to, to the fact that like my normal day, like work-wise is like 10 to three, 
and I'm able to, to get up and train and come back and drink coffee with my wife and eat breakfast with the kids and get them off to the bus stop and then go walk the dog and read a little bit and then get started with my first call. And after work, I'm able to go to all the practices and do all the things. And, um, that that's been a goal of mine and it's definitely something that I'm really enjoying. There's, there's a lot of things that I could unpack there. Um, so I'm just going to start and see how we go. Something let's, that let's, I, let's um, roll. I love it. <laughs> um, something that I actually most admire about my own father is he's a very, very successful businessman. He started a business that's now very, very large within Australia, although he's been out of it for over a decade. But throughout my childhood, when he was most sort of putting in the grind for that, he still made a very dedicated effort to be a family man, spend time with the kids. And one of the people who I think really helped him sort of ground himself in that was my mum, mm -hmm. because she herself, um, she's actually more highly educated than my dad, but she elected to be a stay home mum to sort of facilitate him pursuing some of those mm -hmm. entrepreneurial interests of his. And so by being able to put the foot down and say like, we're a family first, I think she was able to keep him grounded. Mm -hmm. Did you find that your wife or your partner through this process was also a grounding influence for you? Oh, I mean, she's, and, and this is like, honestly hard for me to say without even getting emotional, but like she, she is like the grounding force, you know? And I think that's something that, you know, even going back to like when we first met in college, like I was going through a very difficult time just personally. I was an athlete that was always injured and uh, liked the lifestyle of an athlete probably more than I probably should have at the point and was having a lot of trouble with, with things associated with that. And she really kind of pulled me out of it, you know, even at the time. And as we obviously dated and then ended up getting married. Like she's, she really is my best friend, you know, as cliche as all of that sounds, um, like she's the person I like to spend time with the most out of anybody. If I could choose who I would spend time with, it would be her, you know, every time. And no one supports me more, you know, whether it was when we were working in New York or whether it's running, you know, my business now, like she's my biggest fan, you know, and it's something that I know she's always in my corner. But at the same time, she's also very objective. And if I do ask her for advice or I do ask her opinion on something, she will be very honest and very truthful with me. And I think that's super important because I do know that like when she does say something to me that maybe is again, kind of against, against what I was, you know, the direction I was potentially going to go in. Like, I know it's coming from a very honest and very authentic place. Um, and, and that's something with, with her, like, when she went to become a stay at home mom, like she, she was theoretically at that point more successful than me too. I just had a higher ceiling. Like she was working at Condé Nast. Um, she was in editorials like back in the day in fashion magazines and, um, ended up giving a lot of that up and to, to be again, to be a mother, you know, we didn't, we made a conscious decision with that, that it was important for her to be with the kids, um, rather than somebody else. Um, and she dove into that and, is a fantastic mother, is a fantastic wife, but she sacrificed a lot, you know, through that process. So that, that story resonates with me a lot because that's, I feel like we're very much in the same place, but everything we do, um, as parents, like we're very much on the same page. And again, like how we parent, how we interact with the kids, what we want to prioritize, what, what we want to show them, right? Like I, like 
I love my father as much as, as much as probably anybody else does, but at the same time, like he was from a different era, right? Where it's like, we didn't hug. We didn't like tell each other we loved each other. We didn't do any of those things. Like we didn't show emotion, you know, in my house very much as when I was a kid. And, and that's something that we do a lot of here. Like I, I hug my kids every chance I get. I embarrass them in public all the time, probably, um, probably more so in the next few years than, than we do now. But it's like, I want to make sure they always know that we're there for them and we're their biggest fans. And I think that's something that definitely bleeds over from my wife through that process too. Sure. There's an observation I've made of workaholics and I know a few um, of my parents' generation, not among my friends. I think when you're young, it's probably natural to be mm-hmm. very excited by the prospect of working. But as your life goes on and you do get into that sort of family building age, a lot of the people who I see who are true workaholics don't have that solid backing at home. Mm-hmm. And whether it's because they haven't invested in it on their own part or that their relationships just aren't as strong, you know, and they're not as happy with who they're with, it seems to be that they almost like look to work as a coping mechanism because mm. it, it gives them a sense of purpose or meaning. And obviously money is positive feedback mm. if you get paid well. That's something. But it's almost like they're trying to fill a void that might be better filled with love by mm. further investment in work. Um, and at the same time, if your work is not engaging and not rewarding and you don't earn good money from it, then I don't think you get the same satisfaction in being at home. Like I certainly feel a bit more esteem in myself and have more joy with my friends when I feel like I'm achieving things and kicking goals Mm -hmm. in the rest of my life. So for you as somebody who had been really hustling and earning good money, how, like, how were you able to sort of establish where the balance is, where, where you were still satisfied with your career whilst getting those things from your family? Yeah. I mean, I I think the biggest thing for me is, you know, and and this is, this is going to be independent, you know, of, of individuals, but, uh, we obviously moved from New York and I, I essentially just changed my life around what I needed my lifestyle to be. And that at the time was really scary. Uh, if we were still living in New York, I'm not sure I would be able to do exactly what I'm doing to the same level, um, simply because the expenses are so much higher, right? It's uh, We can talk income and all we want, but at the end of the day, your living expenses dictate what your income needs to be. And living in one of the most expensive cities in the world as a, as a single income family, uh, was doable, but very difficult, you know, and, and very stressful. And I think that's something that where we moved and, and how my business is set up is I, I really had to change my environment, you know, to around my thought process more so than constantly trying to adapt my thought process around my environment. And I, and I know, as I say that, that that's not, something that's going to be manageable for a lot of people. And it's not always the best advice. And I honestly try not to give that advice to people because I know it's not manageable for a lot of people, but that's what I kind of had to do uh, after a period of time. And, and it's strange. Cause it's like, now it's like, I, I make just as good of money and even more uh, potentially and, and have the lifestyle and, and have less expenses. And it's nice to say it worked out, but it's also, there's probably a lot of confirmation bias there. And there was a lot of hard work that went into that. And, and again, now I'm getting to a point where I can scale a little bit more and uh, be more efficient probably with what I'm doing from a systems perspective. And obviously I have more help on the back end with, with Matt and, and Craig as well. But uh, like when I started, it was 
one of the trap I fell into immediately is like my first six months to a year of work on my own business. Like I was working at home, but I was still working 13, 14 hour days. Like I'd still be on the computer from, you know, 6am to, you know, seven or 8pm sometimes. And it's just like, this is no better. Like, this is actually, this is what I was trying to get away from. And I fell straight back into the trap. As soon as I had, uh, you know, the chance to, I essentially went straight back to what I was the most comfortable in. And I really had to change my own expectations as far as what I wanted my work to be. And, um, a lot of it just had to, had to also do with, you know, making sure that I was prioritizing family time and, um, literally like as simple as it sounds like doing things like blocking out spaces in my calendar. So I could not overbook or double book family stuff, like things that again, seem too simple to work sometimes what they do. Um, and, and that was, that was a big, big part of it is I would just, if I couldn't get it done in a certain amount of time, it wasn't going to get done. And if it, and if I needed to make more money, I needed to find a way to show more value and raise my prices in the time allotted that I had for work. Uh, so I ended up also dictating my entire business plan and profitability margins and all those things around 25 to 30 hours a week of work rather than 50 to 60. Um, and, and that was something that, again, I just had to rework the numbers and, and make the math happen at that point. I haven't been to New York, um, but from what I've heard, it is like the quintessential 24-hour city. Like at any time you walk outside, there's stuff happening, there's people doing things. And I imagine that that environment does contribute to that sense of like got to hustle mm -hmm. um, that you were talking about. But at the same time, I do recall you saying that one of the like one of the essential things for early coaches to go through is just a period mm -hmm. of hustle. You got to be willing yeah. to spend a lot of time in the gym and a lot of it unpaid. You got to be willing to work on yourself, mm -hmm. spend your money on education, and just work harder and harder and harder. So, for newer coaches, again, how do you how do you sort of advise them to balance those competing interests of needing a life but needing to hustle? Yeah. I mean, and there's a few reasons for that. And, and a lot of it is the industry in general. Um, I mean, it kind of eats itself, right. And, and it, you know, most, like most metrics that I've seen as far as the U S if I look at like URSA and then some of the more national metrics, and that was something that I actually had to really keep an eye on that in, pri in prior management positions, but like the industry as a whole has 150 plus percent turnover margin. Right. And so it, in general, like more people fail out of this industry than they do retain within it. And that's like the first 90 day numbers. Right. So when I, when I look at that, I think when I talk to new coaches, the ex, the biggest thing that I have to talk with them about is like what their expectations are early on. Because if you go into something and, and you don't expect it to be difficult and you don't expect that you're going to have to work long hours and you just see, maybe the social media side of things, or you're look, you're talking to like people who are really successful in the industry already. And they're giving you kind of their, what their daily schedule looks like now, as opposed to when they just began. Um, it's going to be really hard and it's going to be really difficult. And I do think just from a pure perspective uh, of, of just kind of understanding how fortunate we can be in this industry, uh, the majority of the most successful people that I've worked with, went through a period, a year to two year period early on in the career when they were building their business that they were, they were working at a gym, you know, six, seven days a week, long hours, training lots of sessions at any rate they could possibly get. And then over time they were able to 
slowly start whittling down those hours and raise that hourly rate and, and make it into something that was manageable and, and has some longevity to it. Um, and I, I think that's just something that uh, a lot of coaches need to go through. Um, and I don't think a little adversity early on in your career is a bad thing for most people. Uh, and again, that's subjective. So, you know, take, take out of it what you will, but it's definitely something that for me, just anecdotally made me appreciate where I'm at now much more, you know, and, and that's something that, yeah, like, uh, <laughs> when I was in New York, I was, we were living in, in South Brooklyn and I had about a 45 hour, hour long commute into the city. So I would get up at three fifteen to three thirty to walk to the train, get on the train, get into the city get to my five o'clock client. Um, and I was usually the only sober person on the train. I saw a lot of very interesting and entertaining things, uh, would, would generally almost get thrown up on almost every morning. Um, it, it was, it was an interesting experience, especially coming from my background, which was essentially growing up on a farm in the Midwest. Uh, so it was a complete culture shock for me. And, um, the city itself is definitely, different in the fact that there is something always going on and it does drive a lot of those actions. I was actually talking to to one of my, my good friends, Pat Davidson today about that, who who's still in the city and we worked with for a number of years where it's the most dopaminergic place most people could ever think about. And it's one of those environments where it attracts a certain type of person who wants to be a high achiever. Like no one goes to New York to be mediocre. Like no, nobody moves to someplace that expensive and that competitive to not be successful. So you already have a selection bias from a demographic perspective. And then if you're not successful, people are forced to leave because you can't afford to stay, you know, in most cases. So you've got this weird demographic where if you're not willing to do the work or somebody else will be, and you're, you're also in a, in a population that almost martyrs themselves, the hard work into the hustle and to the grind and into whatever. Um, and it's very easy to fall into that lifestyle based on your environment. Your environment will dictate that as the norm in most cases. And it's, I remember thinking about everybody else in the world being lazy when I was in New York, instead of me looking at it as a rational person would be and be like, what is wrong with all of these people? who live a lifestyle like this, right? It's just, you, you get this really kind of backwards thinking about what, what a balanced lifestyle should actually be based on that. And your perception is definitely skewed. I think it takes a little bit of courage or a lot of courage actually to be so deeply embedded in an environment like that. And to, from external measures, at least be experiencing success and say, actually, this isn't quite it. I think, like people in general have a bias towards inertia. You know, it's much harder to change than to keep doing what you're mm -hmm. doing, um, even when the prospect of change might yield you benefit. Mm -hmm. And so to be able to be in that environment and actually take that external perspective is something I quite admire about you. And I'm sure that your wife and her her sage advice to you might have helped, but <laughs> I think that takes courage. Sage. Sage is a good way to put that. Um, it's a polite way to put it for sure. Uh, no, it's definitely... Um, it was, it was really scary. Like I, it's something, again, it's like, I've had this conversation with a lot of people and it was, we're fortunate again, that we had a place to move back home with closer to family and all that. But it was very scary leaving that environment and not, 
not even from just like a financial threat perspective, but even from a, like a sociological or a social perspective where it's like, you know, anyone who leaves the city or leaves that environment is almost always kind of labeled a failure in that respect. Or you always feel like you're leaving something like more at, at a higher level to go to something at a lower level and getting over just kind of the ego involved in that process was, was very difficult for me, more difficult than I thought it would be, to be honest. And, and again, like I said, I think that's, that was part of what, you know, led, was leading even to a little bit of a spiral as I was getting ready to leave was just the, not only, you know, the dissatisfaction with what was going on, but also feeling like I was failing something that in reality was probably pretty arbitrary, but when you're in it, everything's real, right? It's like, a, there's no, you don't, you don't necessarily recognize that just because of your own bias. And, um, that was something that was very difficult for me and definitely scary to do. And, um, still is kind of to think about even. In a much smaller sense in my own life, I completely understand, um, what you're describing about the worry that people will perceive you as lesser or a failure for what you do. Yeah. Because even where I feel like my decisions are justified, I still do sometimes think, what would my peers think of me were I to do X, Y, and Z? And oftentimes what would strangers whose opinion actually means nothing to me most of the time think of me if I did this and the, the idea that I would be evaluated as anything other than a success upsets me um, when in reality it should have no bearing on my life because I'd be doing the same things no matter what. Yeah. It still scares me. And I think that's just part of being human, right? Oh, 100%. You know, I mean, it's, it's like my it's so funny to to think about now. And it, it's frankly a little embarrassing, but I even like remember for probably the first six months that we had moved, I still had like I, taking New York out of my signature line or my bio line on Instagram was like one of those like moments where I was like, Oh shit, it's real. Like this is, you know, this is it. And I, and it was definitely like the perception of it to me was, was definitely something that, I was fearful of, and like you said, it mainly from people I didn't even know, like just like the internet community as a whole, like the people that I was engaged with, um, the people who honestly don't matter and have probably never invested in my business or my life in any way. Anyway, um, that was, that was tough. And again, it, like it, rationally, it makes no sense, but emotionally you feel it. Like it's, it's still there. And, and I think that's something that like little things like that were like constant reminders where I was just like, oh, I'm, I'm not there anymore. Um, and even like talking to, to friends here, you know, when we moved, like when I left, I was actually, you know, the truth be told on the story, I was going to change locations, but remain with the company I was at and work remotely. And I was traveling a lot anyway, so it wasn't going to be that big of a deal. And I was actually, you know, we sold our house. I stayed for another week and I got let go the day before I was flying back home. And uh, that would have been crippling. It was tough, man. Like we, we were literally like buying a house. Um, there's a lot of, a lot that went into it as well. I was also like kind of extorted for another four weeks to, to show employment uh, on, on my house as well and worked without pay for a period of time. Um, but it was definitely one of those things where it's like, I, it took almost a year for me to get to the point where I was comfortable telling people that I was no longer working for that company, that I was starting my own thing. Um, and again, just really based on perception and nothing more. Uh, but I, I was still telling people for 
upwards of six months that I was still working remotely for that company, even though I was not. And that, mainly because I was just too embarrassed to say that I wasn't. Fitness industry. An observation that I've made that I'm sure you agree with is that a lot of coaches get into fitness thinking more about their passion for fitness itself than necessarily for fitness as a career. And I think one of the issues with, like you said, that early hump in fitness careers where you do need to work a lot and often it's unpaid um, and so on is that it can eat away at that passion, you know, again and again and again and again until suddenly the passion is gone and you don't necessarily have a whole lot of fuel left to feed that fire and, and keep you going. So I'm curious for you, what sources of satisfaction were you able to find in your career? Or did you just have an inexorable pool of passion that you drew from? Because to me, when I see people who are like stoked working 10 hours a day, seven days a week on fitness, I think like, fuck, you must lack imagination because like <laughs> there's more to life, you know? Or or you're just like a sociopath. Um, yeah, well, there's no, them I, too. <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's probably another question. Um, no, I mean, honestly, so we moved to New York for my wife's career. Um, she had interned there all through her, her college and was starting out in the fashion industry and got a job right out of school. And at that time, like I moved with her and it was kind of just like, a, like I can be a trainer anywhere. Like I, you know, I had my, my undergrad and my CSCS and I was kind of employable just about anywhere. I was like, why not New York? And didn't really know what I was getting into, you know, from that standpoint, but like, I'll never forget two weeks in, you know, I was completely shell-shocked in a new environment, literally hiding in the bathroom of the gym I was at because I was so sick of talking to people on the floor and getting told to fuck off. Um, and I got my first check and it was for like $170. And I was just like, holy shit. Um, I don't, I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. I'm sorry. No, you um, swear away. But, By the way, I yeah, hid in I, the bathroom in my first, um, my first dude, shift was, as well. So I was at it the was busiest crazy. gym in Sydney and I was <laughs> yeah. just not ready. <laughs> Go on. I was in, I was in union square in, in Manhattan. And if you're familiar with New York, it's the outside of times square. It's the biggest subway, you know, hub and everybody goes through there. And I was at a very, very busy gym, biggest location within the, the organization that I was working for. And yeah, like literally three months off of a, a 40 acre farm. Like I had no idea what I was getting into. It's more people than I'd ever seen. Um, and, but I got that paycheck and I was absolutely terrified. And I, I basically at that point was, you know, my motivation, it wasn't the passion for fitness at that point, as much as it was like a complete fail of, you know, fear of failure. And I, I just kind of made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to be the reason we had to move home. And the psychosis behind that, I'm, I'm not sure if that's necessarily a positive way to go about that thought process, but that's from a true, just being truthful perspective. That's really what it came down to is I, at that point, like I got up and I was on that first train into the city and there were days where I couldn't afford a subway pass because we had no money and I had to walk across the Williamsburg bridge into the city. And those days I had to get up at two 30 to get to the gym at five o'clock in the morning. And I would talk to everybody. I'd be the first one in the gym. I'd be the last one out. I would talk to all the people that nobody else wanted to talk to or train. I would take any lead from my manager, regardless of how good or bad it was. Um, and I would train anybody at any time, you know, and I think 
that was my motivation as far as just, I, I needed to be successful enough for us to be able to stay. And I was burnt out most of the time, like even in my second and third year, like there was a point where I was one of the most successful trainers in the company before I got into management, I was doing 220 plus sessions a month at that point. Um, and you know, pretty much sealing down financially as far as like what I could make from a pay scale perspective. And I was a zombie, like all the time I was not enjoying what I was doing, uh, but I felt obligated to do it. And, um, that was about the time that I got more into development and education. And that kind of became more of a passion of mine as I started leading educational meetings, uh, in my, in my actual facility, uh, just as a master trainer. And, that even stemmed from the manager that I had. I would literally complain to her about other trainers on our staff sucking and being like, Hey, can you talk to this, this person over here wearing the same shirt as me? Who's like dancing around on a BOSU ball with battle ropes and bands and like doing their best, you know, impression of Instagram, you know, mania, meme, meme material. And, and she would say, Hey, how about you talk to them? How about you teach education? And I was like, no, not a chance. Like at that point, I didn't even talk to my coworkers. I literally would walk in, train my clients and walk out. Like I was not a nice person. I wasn't social in any way in the gym. Um, I wasn't good for the culture even probably, but I started doing it and I fell in love with it. And there's probably a little bit of ego in there too, but I loved the, I love teaching. I love the education aspect of things. And that got me into leadership and ended up being a manager and a district manager and a regional manager and working my way up and then going and being a national director for another company. Um, but I, I kind of just switched the focus where it's like, I, I enjoyed training my clients, but I also realized very early on that training was much more about the service than the X's and O's of training, you know, 100%. in most cases. We spoke about um, this on your podcast. Huh? I was saying, yeah. 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 And it's just like, I, I really kind of figured out that it was like, what these people do doesn't matter nearly as much as that they show up and do it. And I kind of, I, I became a lot, it forced me to become a, a lot less rigid, I should say, in like how I was training people, because I'm, I'm a very analytical person. I'm very data driven and, and numbers driven as a lot of coaches in the industry are. And I realized about my third day on the job in New York that my clients did not give a fuck about any of that stuff like at all. Uh, and, and they wanted to do certain exercises. And if I told them they couldn't, they'd literally go train with another coach. And I kind of had to start compromising, you know, needs to wants from a, from a big perspective. And that actually, I think made me a much better coach. Um, and being forced to be a little more extroverted, uh, individually forced me to be a much better coach. And, and talk to talk to more people. And, um, and I started kind of just reprioritizing a lot of the things that I was doing, you know, from a training perspective, like I was still programming and queuing and doing all the things, but I really started really trying to make the primary aspect of my training, like how good of an experience can I provide for this person in front of me? And, and oftentimes it had nothing to do with the actual exercise selection of the training itself, but how I was presenting myself and what we were doing. Um, and I think that kind of decreased maybe like a drop in passion or something else. Cause I just shifted the focus a little bit. I'm glad you said that. Cause that was my next question. I, um, I think that our relationships with clients are a reliance on us wanting to be there. If you know, if you show up as a PT with bleary eyes and you don't give a fuck what your client's <laughs> saying, you can't remember their name. And although that is my favorite 
that is my favorite joke with the clients when I'm opening their programs is to say, which one are you again? Um, <laughs> you know, you do, you do have to care about them. And if you're at the point where you can't give of yourself emotionally, because there's just nothing left, then your client's experience gets worse too. And so managing to work at a very high level whilst feeling burnt out inside takes discipline and professionalism in a way that mm. perhaps people outside the fitness industry don't fully understand. You know, they think you just show yeah. up with a clipboard and get paid, but, yeah. but you actually have to give people something to be any good. It's it's why and I, I always say, because um, obviously, and again, I'm not sure what, what you guys' structure is there, but there's there's like, you know, exercise science is a huge undergrad, you know, here in the States from a university perspective. And that's kind of the, the route that people go if they want to get into training or strength and conditioning or whatever. And there's not a single class on communication and talking to people. And, you know, it's like everything, like you learn all the biomechanics, you learn all the anatomy and physiology and energy systems and all that, even a little bit of tensegrity stuff, right? Fuck, you I had an HD average, dude. I don't remember <laughs> tensegrity, I'm going to be honest. And you just, you you learn nothing about how to communicate with people and how to, and how to provide a good service, right? And it's just like, that's, that's 90% of the success rate. The amount of people in this industry that, especially like I was a manager and a hiring manager for a company. Like there was a point where I was doing upwards of 25 interviews a week uh, for, for this company and, and placing people in different facilities. And the amount of people that I've seen with, you know, undergrads and masters in exercise science and internships and all this stuff from a strength and conditioning perspective, completely wash out of the industry strictly because they could not relate to the individuals in front of them and they couldn't show that personal aspect of the business or that service aspect. And all they cared about was what was on the clipboard. Uh, and I think that that sets a really tough expectation for people coming out of programs. And, you know, we, we make this joke all the time, but like if I'm interviewing two people and one of them's a bartender that just likes to lift and the other one's an exercise science, you know, masters, who's never talked to anybody, I'm hiring the bartender 10 out of 10 times. Like if I want to actually hire a successful person for that environment, um, I can teach them the X's and O's of training. Uh, it's very hard to teach somebody how to be a people person or, or motivate them that that's even important in a lot of cases before they, before they figure it out. And, um, that's, that's kind of a big failing, you know, in that aspect for me, as far as if I'm looking at those programs, that's something that I had to learn through failure myself. I've spoken about this on this mm -hmm. podcast and others. I did an undergrad in exercise science as well. You're correct that there was nothing about how to talk to people. In fact, nothing about tensegrity um, that I can remember. Damn. And, and <laughs> it was at the end of that degree when I started personal training. And I was very much of the opinion that people hired me because they wanted advice as to how to exercise optimally. So I would come in with my optimal exercise thinking I was doing fantastically well. And... After not too long, I realized that in spite of me writing good programs, my clients were either not adhering or not getting the results that they ought to no. oftentimes. And I was thinking this must be a problem with them, um, <laughs> you know, and I was, I was stubborn enough to think that for a while. And at the same time, I was doing my master's in nutrition and dietetics that I nearly dropped out of. And one of the reasons that I nearly dropped out of it, other than realizing I didn't want to work in the field and being pretty lonely in, in the study, was that a lot of what they were teaching us focused on clinical skills with clinical skills largely being to do with how do you talk to people to extract the information that you want 
motivate them to take change and guide their actions without being all prescriptive to them and trying to sort of empower them to do things themselves and sort of speak on their level. These are all things where I was like, that's wishy-washy bullshit. I want to know <laughs> from a biochemical perspective, you know, why this many carbs? And yeah. they didn't talk about that at all. In fact, in my master's in nutrition, I learned very little about nutrition itself, but I learned a huge amount of clinical skills. And it was after, after sort of a couple of years of, to be honest, failure with anything other than the most robotic clients of PT, where I started saying, oh, you know, maybe I'll give some of this motivational interviewing shit a go. And, <laughs> and lo and behold, my personal training got much, much better, but I only got there through fucking up for ages. And then, you know, you talk about your bartender friends. I look around and some of my friends and colleagues who are the most successful trainers are the people who are most approachable um, and whose background is in hospitality or, you know, yeah. being the person on the gym desk who could just talk to every person who came in the door for hours and hours and hours because in spite of the lack of exercise knowledge, they just get people on board and, and have them showing up and working hard consistently. And I think that's, you know, that's a big lesson that a lot of PTs have to learn, but in doing so it requires you also to sacrifice a bit of the ego and say, okay, my intellectual grasp of fitness is perhaps not as important as I like to think, even though it's what I've built my identity around. That's yeah. It's very humbling. I, I think for a lot of coaches and, and that's something like for me, it's, it's very much the same thing. Like I'm, I'll get as nerdy as people want to get. Like, I love the science of things. I, God help me. I love big words. I love them so much. They make me feel important. They make me feel special. Um, and, and I learned really early on, like I would just watch clients eyes glaze over. Like I'd be explaining an exercise and they would just like, like eyes would roll back. They'd completely tune out. I'd get them to actually perform the exercise. They wouldn't do anything I asked them to do because I wasn't one. I wasn't speaking in a language that they understood. And two, I wasn't speaking to anything they actually cared about. Like I was talking about femurs on pelvises instead of glutes. Right. And it's just like, no, I probably just need to talk about the things they actually care about, demonstrate an exercise, let them do it. And then ask them what their weekend plans are. And then we go again for three, for 10 more reps. Right. And it's just, it took me a long time to drop, like you said, drop the ego um, of, of wanting to rationalize and, and over explain everything to validate myself. And that was a huge point of me. And, and I think again, a part of that for me too, is like growing up in the Midwest, like we, we did well, but we were very like blue collar family. Like we never had, like, we weren't throwing money around and, but I was charging a very expensive price, especially by like my value system from a monetary perspective. And I felt like I had to show as much value as possible every hour. And my evaluation system of fitness was the knowledge aspect of it because that's what I'm biased towards. So I was trying to explain everything from, from a biomechanical or physiological, you know, lens. And the reality of it is they didn't care about any of that. And, you know, one of the things that we always tell our groups is like, you don't go to an accountant to learn tax law, right? You, you, you want to pay, you literally want to shove money at them and say, please give me the biggest return possible. And I don't really care how it's done. And, and, you know, training's not that much different no. in, in a lot of respects, you know, and um, it's, it's not always what we're interested in, but again, that just has to, we have to take the, the onus off ourselves and the focus off ourselves and onto them. Hmm. And they'll tell you in the intake, if you perform it right, what language they speak and what they value. And I, I literally just try to use those goals assessment forms 
to learn the words that they like if someone says tone if somebody says core if somebody says whatever you know what whatever other word that you know weight loss whatever i'm going to use those same words back to them yeah that's I'm not going to correct them i'm not going i'm just going to roll with it that's again a practice that i picked up eventually through osmosis i was very fortunate when i was about 15 years old i actually trained with a personal trainer myself called lewis mclean and he ended up um, he ended up getting an exercise physiology degree. So he works with some clinical populations, but he also works with athletes. And he was working with a whole bunch of general population clients. And I thought back to how he taught me a lot of exercises, and it was always using the same language that I used. But when I began personal training, he had just moved on from a gym and referred me a bunch of clients, and all of them had specific words for exercises and movements and things that they had established between themselves and him. So it was like, they were all talking in their own little language. And at the time I was like, you know, fuck Lewis talks like an idiot. And then after, (laughs) after a bit of time, I realized actually what he's really gifted at is communicating ideas to people on their terms. And he's brilliant at it, but it took me a long time again to realize that moving away from femurs on pelvises and towards you know, the butt muscle or whatever they had chosen yeah. to say. Um, yeah. Was a better thing, was a better thing to do. I want to move a little bit back towards the shape of your career. Yeah. Um, one of the biggest gifts in life, I think, for happiness is like the ability to be present and enjoying what you're doing. And something that I can find very difficult is my my preoccupations, whether they're with work or something else, filter into the space that I've dedicated to other tasks. So if I'm working really hard and I go to spend time with friends, sometimes I find it hard to switch off work and therefore I get less back from my friends and then I come to resent work rather than being fully engaged. And one of the reasons why I get so much satisfaction out of things like travel um, is because when I travel and I have no obligations on me, I really do just get to enjoy the moment that I'm in for you as somebody who has these two sort of spaces within your life, family and business that are both important, how do you draw those lines and how do you bring yourself back to the present when you need to? Oh yeah. This is a, this is a really good question. And one that took me a long time to figure out what would work for me, you know, and I think it, it probably started in a lot of different phases as my career just changed. And you know, one of the first things I did probably really early in my career is I stopped giving my clients my cell phone number. <laughs> and again, these these are all going to sound really simple, uh, but but they're easy to apply and they're they're pretty practical, I think. But I stopped giving my clients my cell phone number, and and I told them that like you know I need to be able to track things much better than I am, and we're going to communicate via email from now on, and the difference for me or the major difference for me there is people have a different social expectation and response expectation between texting and and emailing, even though theoretically now on smartphones, it's the same thing, right? Like it's like the, the access is the same, but there's a different expectation based on response time. Like if you text somebody, you expect something back, you know, you expect a response in a couple hours, right? However, if you email somebody that's going to initially infer like business hours, for a lot of people. And so I started there and and that was actually the advice of one of my older coworkers because they saw me at all times of the day during the day when I wasn't training, like answering text messages for, for clients nonstop. 
And they were like, man, you got to stop doing that. You got to set better expectations and you have to set better boundaries. And it's like, how do I do that? And he's like, Hey, no one knows my cell phone number. Like it's email. My bot, like our manager at the time didn't know his cell phone number. Everything was via email. And with that, that kind of eventually evolved into, you know, we have a 24 hour response time and I'm going to answer, you know, emails between the hours of nine to five. And after that, I'm done, you know, and that, that set boundaries for my clients and a different expectation, but it also forced me to be a better coach and give better explanations when questions were being answered for me, like on the job. And especially I use that now a lot from a remote perspective where I just set the table better and I have less questions. It's kind of like the old, the old adage, right? Like if you, you can either do like a lot of corrective exercise or you can just pick a better exercise that doesn't need a lot of cueing, right? I, I can pick something very complex and just cue the hell out of it and watch my client fail it a million times. And, or I can just pick an exercise that has the right constraints and the right loading scheme and the right intensity level and the right volume and probably be better off with no explanation or no cues at all. And with this was very much the same thing where I just tried to be a better coach and that led to less confusion and less questions outside of the gym as well. Um, even during session, you know, I would always make sure that I was answering questions about, you know, nutrition or lifestyle or whatever, the things that were coming top of mind, I wouldn't just, and, and part of not over explaining exercises allowed for more time to do those things and have better general conversations with people and, and teach people more from a principle based, uh, scenario than, a, than, a, a context-based scenario from, from, for a lot of those things. And, um, over time, those are things that I managed a lot. Like I still don't, uh, give my cell phone number out to clients. I still communicate 99% via email. Um, and now it's changed a little bit to where it's like clients will literally try to DM me. And I'm like, no, like, I'm not looking, you're not doing video submissions for me via DM. Like you can drop these in the Google drive, just like everybody else does. And, and I think that's, you know, having systems in place is another big thing where now that I'm running my own business, um, we automate everything we can. We have automated responses. We have automated check-ins that saves a ton of, even like, uh, like how we bill clients and we go through, you know, uh, financial transactions, everything that we do now is EFT. I'm never chasing down invoices and do like, it's cut back my administrative work 40 to 50% just by automating a, a ton of our systems. And, and making sure that those things are actually happening behind the scenes. And I don't have to facilitate a lot of that stuff. Um, you know, so I think better preparation and better expectations are, are, are typically what I've done. And then just setting really hard boundaries for people, you know, and, and being honest with them. Uh, I, I think it is super important when you're, when you're talking to clients, you know, we obviously, like you mentioned earlier, like we develop strong relationships with a lot of the people we train and, those lines get blurred really quickly. Um, and communication is the first thing to blur in my experience where, you know, you start with somebody and it's like, you're talking in session and they're a little hesitant to reach out. And then a month later, they're texting you every day, multiple times a day. They're, they're sending pictures of meals and all kinds of weird things. And, you know, I, I think setting those boundaries really early on, even from the intake and the consultation and just saying like, Hey, this is what we do right? I'm going to answer, you can send me unlimited emails, but it's a 24 hour response time. And I answer emails between these times. And 
I need to track what we're doing in our communication. It's easier for me to go back. So we're going to communicate via email exclusively. All right. Uh, and again, I think that's, that's an important aspect because that, that lets them know day one, what everything is. Um, and, and that holds them accountable throughout. If you're trying to set those expectations six to eight weeks into a program, once they've already overstepped your own personal boundaries that you never warned them about, that's your fault mm. as a coach. It's like the endowment effect because you're taking something away from them that they perceive yeah. as theirs, which is their right to hassle you. Mm. Yeah. Now it's a lesser service though. Now they're paying the same amount for less service, right? So it's very difficult. I, I think that's a huge aspect and that's something a lot of coaches are very hesitant to say day one with somebody because they're afraid of like losing the client or not making the sale. Uh, when, when the reality of it is a lot of clients on day one are so hyped to start training that they'll, they'll go with it. They're like, okay, that's fine. And, and it's, it's not actually that much of an issue. There's two elements, and this is something I discussed at length with my mentorship um, intake. There's two elements of defining when you are going to respond to people that I think are really, really important. And this is one of the reasons that I moved to a comprehensive weekly check-in for the majority mm -hmm. of my clients and just said, I'll do emergency contact in between, but everything else goes in the check-in. Um, one is that people grow in the space that you give them. So, mm -hmm. you know, it forces you to make better coaching decisions, like you said, but here and there having your clients actually have to make a couple of decisions, occasionally make a couple of mistakes, but giving them the opportunity to learn and develop some self-efficacy rather than being dependent on you is actually a better service as a coach, because ultimately you don't want dependent neurotic clients. You want clients who are getting results and feeling good. So that's number one. Yeah. And number two, as a fellow French bulldog owner, I can say that clients are like dogs um, and they're like dogs in that they love to have clear routines and expectations. Mm -hmm. And so when you say to somebody like my clients, I do my check-ins on the Monday and the late ones spill over to a Tuesday. And when I say to them, your check-in email goes out at 8 a.m. on Friday, it's automated and I will start doing check-ins on Monday morning. So you're going to get it back then. That response loop being predictable means that they're never in the lurch waiting for me. But when I used to have my clients texting me and sending me Facebook Messenger stuff, you would have clients who get anxious because maybe they would message me at 7 a.m. on a Friday morning, you know, with something saying, hey, I'm warming up to squat and X, Y, and Z is happening. But on Fridays, I used to work six till one with no breaks doing mm -hmm. personal training. And so if I didn't respond to them until 1.30 when I was sitting down for lunch, they'd be freaking out because at any other time I might be back within 15 minutes. So having the predictability that systematization allows you also reduces stress on their end in a way that a lot of, a lot of coaches don't actually see, because like you mm -hmm. said, they think that by defining boundaries, they're giving a lesser service. Whereas in reality, it allows you to better shape what you're doing to the person in front of you, you know? And I think that's critical. The yeah. second thing that you mentioned in passing way back that I, that I found very helpful for, for sort of giving myself the sort of space to be present in, um, in whatever I do was time management. So you mentioned like blocking out times in your calendar that you're going to see your family and so on. I listened to a podcast with a guy whose name's very hard to say near Eyal. He wrote, um, becoming indistractable. He wrote a couple of other things, but, but indistractable is the book that he was talking about. And one of the concepts of time management and distraction that he said that I just thought was like brilliant 
was that when we set a schedule in the things that we do, we are defining the goals that we are pursuing in any given in any given time. Mm. And distraction, the actual word implies non-goal-directed behavior. So traction is moving towards a goal. Distraction is not moving towards the goal. If I have defined time as being for work and I'm doing non-work things, I'm distracted. If I have defined time for non-work activities and I'm doing non-work activities, I'm not distracted. I'm using the time appropriately. And going through and appropriately allocating my time for business allowed me to... There's the dog. It allowed me to always know that there was sufficient time for me to do my work, which meant that, so knowing that there was always sufficient time for my work meant that when I was not doing work things, I didn't have to worry about it because I was like, I've got six hours tomorrow allocated to do that. And I know it's going to take less than that time. So let's not stress. Um, And it also meant that when I was doing other things, it was almost like I was saying, I've made an obligation to myself that I'm going to, enjoy this time, just like I make an obligation to myself to do my work time and being able to balance those commitments just made me so much happier than when I used to say, well, I work for myself, I'll get whatever done whenever it has to ha- has to happen. Because at that point, you've just got no purpose in your time, you know? Yeah. And honestly, being when I started entrepreneurship, that was the biggest struggle for me was having no defined expectations. And, you know, I found out very early on that I can be really successful working for somebody else and taking direction and just being given a goal in a time frame. And whether that's a daily time frame or a monthly goal or a quarterly goal or an annual goal, I I can work with those structures, right? And and I thrive in that environment and being an entrepreneur was actually really hard for me. Uh because I wasn't accountable to anybody else but myself. You know, and and that was something where Early on, I struggled to create urgency and and prioritize within my own schedule. And that's where a lot of that came from, where when you have all day to do something, like I'm the type of person where like I'll procrastinate to the end of the day, like for sure, you know, and I'm, and I know that about myself Um, and I thrive under those high stress environments in college. Like I crammed and didn't sleep before every test I ever took. Like I was that person every time. Um, so now it's definitely something where it's like, I look at my calendar and I've got limits like on Calendly invites and, and when I can take calls, I've got limits in my calendar as far as like, again, like where my time is being spent, blocked out for training, um, uh, blocked out for like, like you said, family time, family events, every practice is on there. Date nights with my wife is on there. Weekend events is on there. Does she um, book through Calendly as well? She does not. She she, she <laughs> actually bo- she she books and then adds me to the event, uh, and and it pops up there. I have to I have to accept it. And, uh, but yeah, it's it's <laughs> I'm not that I'm not that weird. Um, just shy of it. And, but that's something for me where it's like that's set. That's being able to define those things. I, and I like the way you put it as far as how that that author put it. It's like it it prioritizes and sets a goal. And that goal again might be professional. It might be hopping on a call with a client or a minty client or doing a group call with one of our groups or, or do or recording a podcast, but it also just might be like going to swim practice and watching my kids. And, and, you know, I think that is very important because as soon as something is in, you know, it's like, as soon as you say putting something in the calendar, saying yes to something, which is essentially saying no to everything else. Right. So 
it's definitely something that um, that's huge for me. And, and that's a big part of it. Speaking of swimming practice with the kids, I can see they're beginning to mill about. Um, so oh, I, they're accidentally locked out of the house. That's where my dog's barking. <laughs> but it's a nice day right now. So it's okay. Oh, well, in that case, we can leave them out there. Um, I was going to say, I do want to wrap up in the next few minutes. If you want to go let them in, uh, <laughs> if you want to go let them in, you go do that. And I will monologue a little bit. And the main reason that I'm monologuing is because I don't quite know how to trim this stuff out of the video. That's oh, wow. That took, that took yeah, much I'm less like... time than I was expecting. <laughs> I was going to start giving a bit of a synopsis of the things you said. <laughs> Thanks for that. So either way, we'll, we'll move towards wrapping this up soon because I don't want to keep you for too much longer. Um, I did want to talk to you very briefly about another of your traits, though, that comes through um, on social media, which is honesty. Sometimes honesty can be a little bit abrasive, but I think that this is a personal bias. I think that honesty is at the root of a lot of things that make you happy in life because, you know, honesty sort of implies integrity. If you're willing to say this is mm. what I truly believe or what I, what I stand for or where my values are, it's very hard to then divorce yourself from them in your actions. And so that comes through in how you work with people professionally, comes through with your decisions about where to invest your time. Mm you know, saying what will make you happy. It's very hard to be an honest person and live a lie. Um, and so I'm curious for you whether whether sort of the decision to be honest is a conscious one and why you think it's so valuable. It's definitely one of my principles, you know, and that and, and just one of my, my core values, right? Like authenticity and integrity, honesty, like those all kind of wrap up into to this, you know, th this one big hodgepodge of, of things that, kind of guide the majority of what I do. And um, professionally, I, I think it's incredibly important, especially uh, in an industry where I do interact with a lot of very young coaches based on what we do. I, th I think it's very important um, to give them kind of, a, again, a real a real description of, of what's probably the most important in this industry and the things that, again, in my experience or anecdotally, but the things that are, are going to be the the big or have the biggest impact on, on them being successful within this industry and successful with clients, you know, so both, both professionally from a business perspective, but also just with individual clients on a day-to-day -day basis. And, you know, the, the industry itself likes to reinvent and prioritize this novelty and complexity and a lot of other things. Um, and a lot of those things end up being very arbitrary and non-issues when it comes down to actually training people within a session on the floor. Uh, and sometimes even detract from somebody's ability to chase fitness and pursue their goals uh, pro progressively and proactively. Um, so I, I definitely speak out against that kind of thought process more than I used to publicly, but it's always something that I've discussed in person um, with, with, with the people that I've worked with. And um, I try to make it funny. I try to make it, you know, into something that's, you know, going to, not be so abrasive, but I know it comes off abrasive sometimes. And, um, that's definitely not my intention, but it, my intention is to let people know where I stand on a lot of those topics and what I actually believe in. Um, not always to change their mind on it, just to let them know where I am and what my thought process is. Prior to us recording, we were talking a little bit about why Instagram sometimes sucks. Um, I hope the Instagram overlords aren't listening to this. I was shadow banned <laughs> last week. Um, 
briefly. I was up. too a, a couple weeks ago. It was okay. Wild. Yeah, it might have um, been from our DM thread. We were talking about magpies. It might have. It might have crushed us. <laughs> it might have been the DM thread. I was actually. I had been seeing a girl and we broke up and I was concerned that she had like reported my profile or something as an act of spite. I was like, that could be the only, the only thing. Um, no, look, I was shadow banned. It sucked. But we were talking about self-censorship a little bit. Um, and one of the things that I find difficult sometimes, one is in the sphere of jokes, there are certain jokes where I just know it only takes 1% of people to not get it for there to be... 10 or 50 people on my Instagram who are pissed off at me mm. if I make a joke. So I censor myself with humor sometimes, but I also, um, I sometimes censor myself in talking about even not particularly controversial topics, just ones in which people hold them close to their heart. And I think in fitness, mm. that's just about anything training related yeah. because it's so hard to have a group discussion effectively. And I think you, you spoke about the fact that you do things in person. I think when you have a disagreement with somebody in person, it's much easier to define the bounds of agreement and also to sort of argue with empathy than it is when you talk publicly. But something that you have done, I think quite admirably, is by willing to be vulnerable and by willing to be honest and say, this is what I believe or these are mistakes that I've made and so on so frequently. It also gives you a little bit more license to talk to people in a group and say, I understand where you're coming from, either because I've been there or because I just see the appeal, but I think you are wrong and this is why. And so in some ways, I think that consistent commitment to honesty has served you well, whereas my consistent commitment to sort of chickening out of saying anything worthwhile probably cruels me sometimes, you know? No, and it's hard because I also, I always try to lead with the context too that I don't even necessarily think that like, the the concept we're talking about or the or the person we're talking about is wrong it's usually in, in my experience more of an application error right just from a con from a contextual perspective where you know we're we're talking about or we're advertising or marketing you know s- specific training interventions on a population they just might not be helpful for right and or we're potentially even being nocebic in the way that we're explaining things, you know, and, and trying to go that route, whether consciously or subconsciously. And and that's something where, you know, I'll have conversations with people. And, and even then, like a lot of the stuff I post, I, I just try to post like my beliefs in something. And, and it's, and it is amazing how many people will get upset when you just post what you believe in, if it disagrees with a point that they've made or, or something that they believe in. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's been, it's a weird experience. Like that's where social media is strange because a lot of the relationships I do have professionally, I've never met these people in person, you know? And it's like, I we, we've never had a real conversation. Like we've at least spoken, you know, via Zoom calls and, and everything else. But a lot of the people I communicate with on a daily basis, like it's through DMs. Like you, you lose a lot through that process. Like you don't have real conversations with people um, and you don't get to read things like body language and, and kind of read, you know, and again, kind of read the room and see where they're at. You just, you get words um, and sometimes emojis, if you're lucky, which kind of give a little bit of an emotional, you know, connotation to things. But it's, um, it's definitely, um, a, it's a different world. Uh, and it's definitely something that's hard to navigate a lot of times. And it, it is difficult for me a lot of those times too. Yeah. And social media, um, I spoke about this with Luke Tulloch on this podcast, it has such a bias towards immediacy 
that what you say when you, you know, you say you try to lead with the context, often it just doesn't work <laughs> because, you know, the only people who are willing to give you the grace to read all the context before your hot take are the people who probably already agree with you or are deep enough thinkers to not really be yes. too fast. Whereas the majority of people, they want the hot takes, they can move on within within 15 seconds. And it's it just doesn't lend itself very well to, to nuanced argument um, or communication of disagreement, you know? No, well, and, and that's nuance and context just doesn't exist on social. Like everybody reads uh, or, or just everybody, you know, looks at a post through through their lens and through their experience and having conversations about that like most of the arguments you know that i see on social media both people are right based on the context that they're they're just talking about completely different applications and environments for you know again the respective intervention or or whatever application Um, and, and they're arguing about things that like apples to oranges at that point and that's something that nobody will ever win. You know, and I try to dissociate myself from those as much as possible, or at least provide a little bit of context to, Hey, this is, this is the environment I'm speaking of. This is the application I'm speaking about. These are the considerations I'm thinking about. Um, and even doing that, you're still going to get people like in the, and like you said, in the comments that are just like, you're an idiot. And <laughs> it's just like, okay, like here we are, you know, okay, it's, yeah, have to type that. Yeah. yeah just, <laughs> I, well, I, I probably am, but maybe not for the reasons you think I am. I don't know. So you work Kyle, for the best. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and now that the family's home, I do want to let you get off and do your family things. Um, but before I do, it's it's been a pleasure to have this talk. Can you please let everybody know where they can find you on the internet, anything special that's coming up for you or your business and anything else you want to say before we wrap up? Yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me. Um, always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, our, our group thread on Instagram is one of the highlights of, of my, my social media experience. I get to learn all about Australian culture through that and it's amazing. Um, but yeah, finding me like uh, Instagram, um, compound performance underscore. And then we're, as we talked about, we're becoming YouTubers as we talked about before the call, because that is where we're probably going to leave a lot of our more educational content moving forward. Uh, and that's just compound performance. The the platform's just set up better for giving information. I'll um, link to it, the YouTube in the description if you're watching yeah. this as a VOD. Yeah, because it, it's small. We, we are... Don't worry, so is my YouTube. Yeah. You're not going to get anything <laughs> from it. I just needed to make sure people know that there is a YouTube channel. <laughs> we, we are not popular on YouTube yet, but we're trying to be. We're it's weird. Be. It looks like yours. You'd think that, you know, subs would be oh, popping. Stop it. Stop. I don't have that mustache. No, um this this is a this is an exclusive. I was put in contact with a man last night who's gonna cut me a mullet. Do you know do you have mullets in the US? Oh, the mullets are getting getting popular with the the definitely a few generations below me, but like the high school age kids and the college age kids, like mullets are flying right now. Okay. I'm slightly too I'm starting to think I'm too old for a mullet, but I but think they've had a resurgence in Australia and <laughs> I just figured mum was going to be so disappointed, but a mullet is coming soon and then it'll be mullet moustache. I'll be looking like I've walked out of a caravan park in the West of Sydney in the 1970s. And that is just, that's the peak of fashion right now. So that's coming very soon. And if you play your intro music at all times, have it with you. Like it's (laughs) going to, it's going to be a vibe as, as you say. 
as yeah, as our generation says. All right, Kyle, <laughs> thank you so much, mate. Um, I'll wrap this up here, but it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Likewise, thank you.